Listen as I read God's word. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes and gl- that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Let's pray. Father, those who walked, ate, lived, and knew you well came to the empty tomb and wondered what had happened, though you had told them. They still had not understood. Father, may we, this very hour, by the power of your Spirit, have understanding. Understanding who you are, what you have done, and how you have come to us. What you have provided. May we clearly, securely know what your death and resurrection means for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe like many of you, when I was a child growing up in the uh, west, Knoxville, west suburbs of Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, in our neighborhood, we often did uh, fun things with our, uh, our, our neighbors uh, all around the community there. And one thing we loved to do was ride bikes. It was just a big part of growing up for me. In the neighborhood, we get on our bikes as soon as school was out, and we get home off the bus, and we would always meet up and have a great time riding bikes in the neighborhood, finding trails and, and backwoods and places to go. Uh, but one thing we always loved to do immediately after school was to go over to a little convenience store, and those that may have heard of this, called Weigel's in Knoxville. And this is their convenience store, oh, about a mile or so from our, from our house neighborhood. And you actually had to go through some backyards and over some backwoods to then go uh, a trail to get to this particular convenience store because we didn't want to go out on the main road. That wasn't allowed because we were only in fourth grade or fifth grade. So uh, I remember one day uh, I decided to take a shortcut and I was going to, because I always raced our friends to get to the convenience store so we could buy our Slurpee. On the, on the afternoon. You know, that was kind of our, our thing to do. And so I was racing uh, to go over the back way, and I went over this about 10-foot-high berm that was built, came off of it, and went down this dirt path and into this open area right before then I got to uh, the convenience store. But as I went over and I came down and looked, I saw these metal stakes about, oh, four feet in, off the ground, uh, metal stakes with a little red tip on the top. And I thought, well, that must be marking a boundary because they were developing a huge uh, shopping center. Uh, just begun the work, moving the dirt and, and so forth. There's going to be a huge shopping center right behind this convenience store. 
And so I said, well, okay, no big deal. Well, a few days later, I decided to take that same shortcut after school, got my bike, and I came up over that berm. I did a wheelie, and I was coming down at breakneck speed. And wouldn't you know, I misunderstood what those stakes were there for. They weren't there to mark a boundary for the shopping center. They were there to place one strand of barbed wire across from end to end, of which it was too late at that point for me to realize it. I slammed the brakes on, but I hit that wire, and my legs got completely torn up inside this barbed wire. 20 stitches later, in my right knee, God was gracious, I didn't hit any tendons or any major arteries, um, I learned a lesson. Be very sure of where you're riding bike at breakneck speed because I misunderstood, and it was a grave misunderstanding, what those posts were there for. You know, in our passage today, you see what I would say would be a grave misunderstanding. A misunderstanding by those who knew Jesus very well. Our passage shows us that those who walked and lived with Jesus were closest to him at the moment when the tomb was empty misunderstood what had happened. They weren't sure why the tomb was empty. Luke gives us our first focus thought, and that is that Jesus' resurrection only can change us when we believe he was God in flesh. He wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a great teacher, a great religious leader. He was, he is God incarnate. He was with them, though they did not understand in that very same manner. Look at verses 2 through 6. It says, <clears throat> After verse 1, when the women took the spices they were going to prepare and went to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away. But when they entered, it says, they didn't find the body, of course, there. While they were wondering about this, it says, then the angels appeared. They were wondering because the women expected him to be there. That's why they took the spices there for what you did in a proper burial at that time. They didn't expect him not, his body not to be there. It's very clear. Verse 12, Peter, even after they came back and the women shared what had happened, what they found, the empty tomb, Peter got up and he ran to the tomb. He could not believe what they were saying. He ran to the tomb with great zeal and desire, and he saw these strips of linen lying on the floor. And what was his response? It says he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Peter, the apostle, he wondered what had happened. He didn't understand what had happened. See, this shows that all of these who were there believed that Jesus was still among the dead. They thought he was just maybe in some sense like many other great founders of religions in the world. And those founders of all other major religions, they've died and they're dead, and their tombs weren't empty. And so this confused them as they saw this empty tomb. If you want to go and to seek them, you have to read their writings, those who have been great religious leaders. You have to 
Consider what they've said or what they've put down in writing. Try to abide by their teachings if you want to follow their religion or try to follow their example. But that's really all you have with great religious leaders. But what the angels came in our passage to these women and what they're saying to the women is this. If you treat Jesus like many would treat any other religious leaders or founders of world religions, brilliant teachers, great moral leaders possibly, you'll not find Jesus there. You won't find him there. He's not in that place like all the other world leaders of religions have been. Now you might say, I've heard about this resurrection of this one named Jesus. I've not maybe read the Bible much, but I grew up around church a little bit, and I've heard about it. I've never really thought about it much. But, you know, Pastor, I'm living in the 21st century. I'm educated, and I really can't believe what you're saying. Even though it was written down, surely I can't believe it's true. I mean, I'm a thoughtful and rational person, and no one rationally would think that someone would rise from the dead. It's just not possible, not physiological, biologically possible. And so I'd really, I just can't see that. You know, back then, people were more primitive. They didn't understand the things we understand now with our technology and our understanding and our science. And we, we can't believe these things now like they believed them back then. They just did not understand. Now, You might even be here today and say, I believe maybe in somewhat of a spiritual resurrection, a spirituality regarding this event somewhat, but I just can't literally believe that an early 30s man died, stopped breathing, was put in a tomb, and he came back to life. I just, I can't believe that. Well, I've got a couple of responses to those feelings, those thoughts. First, it's not just difficult to believe that the resurrection happened today, 2,000 years ago. It was difficult back then. Think about it. Many back then who lived during Jesus' time, and I'm not talking about the ones even in the passage here who struggled and wondered who knew Jesus, but many struggled with this resurrection proclamation. It's always been difficult to believe that Jesus rose from the grave, It's never been easy to believe it, to truly believe and have faith in this miracle event. But you know, not for the same reason that we might struggle with this today, like I've mentioned some of those thoughts, but a whole different reason. You see, in the Greco-Roman culture in Jesus' day, people believe that the physical was bad. The physical body, things that were physical in nature, they were actually, it was evil, And that's what they understood philosophically. They believed the body was evil in a sense, it was bad, and believed that the idea of a physical resurrection would just be ridiculous. It's called Gnosticism. You can Google it this afternoon. G-N-O, and you can follow along. Understanding what Gnosticism was, back then, this belief was very prominent in the culture. And so, it wasn't easy back then for those to hear the account of this resurrection and believe. 
Example, if you went to the book of Acts in the New Testament, right after the Gospels, Acts chapter 17, if you went there this afternoon and read that chapter, you would read about a man named Paul. He was preaching in a place called Athens, and the philosophers were listening to Paul proclaim this truth. They were listening to him describe what the gospel really meant, and they were following along somewhat nicely, being attentive to what he was saying, But when Paul gets to the part in Acts 17 about Jesus' resurrection, at that part of his speech, if you read in Acts 17, that's kind of the end of the sermon for him. They were done at the moment he talked about this physical resurrection. Why? Because they knew it could not be. They didn't even let him finish It was ridiculous. It was absurd in their mind as he proclaimed this resurrection of the Christ. But not just that reason. Secondly, the author himself, Luke, identifies specific people by name. Look at verse 10. He doesn't just say women in general or some apostles in general showed up at the tomb. He specifically mentions Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James. And then he says, and the eleven. He specifically mentions people by name. He mentions Joanna, who was the wife of the administrator of Herod, Mary Magdalene, who everyone knew in that day, in that community, as a reformed prostitute. He mentioned Mary, the mother of James and the apostles. Over 14 people he identified right here in this passage, 11 plus 3. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. These people that Luke named by name would have been known by many eyewitnesses in their community and in their day, and they could have been pursued by those who read this gospel account of Luke very easily because of the relationship. You see, here's kind of a comparative thought. Luke was written about 45 years approximately after the resurrection, Today, if you went back to 1968, 45 years from 2013, and what if someone had written a book that described an incident in a hometown that you grew up in, your hometown, and in that book there, Abraham Lincoln had appeared, was written? You wouldn't believe it, would you? Of course not, just because it was in a book. But now, if your parents, your mother and father, who lived in that town had also told you that they had seen Lincoln, and your grandparents, who you trusted with your utmost being, said the same thing, and the town barber, your second grade teacher, the postman, the chief of police, all those in the community corroborated their stories and said the very same thing you would seriously think about the credibility of what that was. The fact is that thousands of people read the scriptures and probably did their own research within their own sphere of relationships and said, I'm going to give my life to this. I'm going to be willing to die for this. It must be true. Do you think they just did that by reading Luke's account and just saying, oh, sure? No, they made certain of what they knew to be true was actually true. I'm sure they put much effort into that. 
It would be difficult 45 years after the fact for anyone to write about this empty tomb and make a fraudulent claim and get away with it because of the relationships and the connection of all that was going on. What makes it even more credible is this, the fact that everyone who was there, if you read the account, first hears about the empty tomb, they really don't believe, and then they eventually believe. Now, if you were writing an account about this and you wanted to make it sound more credible and you really were stating the facts, this is how you would write this account. You would understand what had happened in that way and the fact that even these who followed gave their own lives as evidence and makes the account even more believable because of what people were willing to give their own lives for. The angels here to these women are saying, Look, if you believe that this was just a fable or a legend, what Jesus said, that he was just a good man, you'll never find him. If you just believe today Jesus was just a good man, a very good man, maybe the best man who have ever lived, and that's pretty much all that you really believe, you'll never really find the risen Christ. You'll never have a relationship with the risen Christ. Now, you might be a good person even here today, live a fairly upright life, moral life in your community and all that you seek to do for others, but you won't be a person that gives themselves to the risen Christ. Christianity, it's not moral reformation. That's not what Christianity is about. The risen Christ didn't come so we would just be morally reformed. He came so that we would be literally Heart transformed, life transformed, old becoming new. That which was is no longer, and now we are in Christ. You see, his resurrection must be believed in order for it to change us, that he was God in the flesh. But secondly, Jesus' resurrection can only change us when we rightly understand his death. Only when you understand Jesus' death will you be able to truly embrace his resurrection and what it means for your own life and how it will change you. Verses 6 and 7, it says he's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? And then the angels said this, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified on the third day he rose again. Now, many of you here possibly on Easter morning believe that there was probably some type of miracle that maybe occurred with Jesus that Sunday morning. But what you probably do not understand that's in this scripture is this. The women there that day understood and they knew that he had died for them in some maybe general way. And that's why they went there to give honor and respect for what he had done in giving his life in some general way. They knew that he had suffered for them as possibly a a great example for them of what he believed. They knew that he held to his integrity as they followed him closely and knew him very well. They knew that because he was such a great man, 
Others sought and finally did destroy his life and take his life. You see, these who were there knew in some general way that he loved them, that he died for them. But to them, his his death was just one more example, possibly, of a great man, a wonderful man, an incredible teacher and prophet. All they knew is that they needed to honor his memory and live a sacrificial life, like he did. But here's the key. They misunderstood Jesus' death. How did they misunderstand Jesus' death? Well, they understood Christianity and Jesus' death to be this. It's important to live a good, upright life, to live as close to what Jesus lived like as possible, or to live for Jesus as best as you can. And that's what they were seeking to want to do, even taking the spices to care for him at the tomb. Now, here's the question. Is that, under your, is that your understanding of Christianity? To take Jesus' example, take your life and do the best you can to follow what he did and do your very best to live like Jesus did or living for Jesus in your own life. Many I'm sure here, think that way. Many of us have thought that at some point, maybe in our spiritual journeys. But here's the key. The women understood that Jesus had died, but they did not fully understand that Jesus had to die. There's a difference. They knew he had died, but what they didn't remember And what he told them, and that's why the angel said, remember what he told you? He told them that he had to die. That's the difference. If you're here this morning and you believe that Jesus has died, so what? You have to believe that he had to die. You've got to believe that. If you don't believe he had to die and what the reason for why he had to die then his death, his resurrection is meaningless. Absolutely has no spiritual relevance to you whatsoever. And I would just live the rest of my life like I would want. It means nothing. Have you ever tried to really very much live like Jesus? Just live your life like Jesus lived. Have you tried very much? If you've tried your hardest, you probably have come to the realization you can't do it. You'll fail even after a long run of a very moral life. You'll eventually fail, and you'll see that in some way. Just because you're at church even on Easter morning doesn't really change the odds in your favor. Sorry about that. If you came to check it off for the year, we are glad you're here. But it doesn't put any odds in your favor on the future of where you will be one day. Just like the women and the apostles, it's very possible to be around Jesus and those who know him, to attend church and even act somewhat religious, but yet you still misunderstand. You still do not understand what his death meant. When it comes right down to it, some of you here this morning, your actual relationship with God is really such that Jesus really might as well still be dead to you. And for many of us, we need to think about that. Romans chapter 3 says this, 
As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. No one who does good. No one who seeks after God. That's pretty much everyone of us. No one does good and seeks after God. You see, the angels were saying to these at the tomb, my dear sisters, the reason that you're misunderstanding Jesus' death and his resurrection is because you've never understood the gospel, the good news. You've never really understood the gospel. You thought that he died as an example. So maybe you're trying to emulate him. But you know, you'll fail miserably every time. The key is this. And remember this so carefully. Jesus did not die on that cross on Good Friday. He did not die as your example. That's not why he died. He died because he had to die to be your substitute. Not your example. He had to be your substitute. He had to take your place, not just give you a light to follow and do your best. That will not grant eternal life. That will not grant a relationship with his Father. It is only through his substitutionary death for us that we have any hope for life everlasting. He did not die as our example. He died for our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, scriptures tell us, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus became sin for us. He was sinless and he took on our sin so that then we would be able to receive his perfect obedience and his righteousness so that we would be accepted to the Father that nothing would keep us between a relationship with the Father and with us sinful creatures. Listen carefully. It's not possible. It's not possible to ever be good enough in your life for God to accept you based on your own spiritual accomplishments. It is not enough that you live a moral life, a really good life relative to anyone else you might compare yourself to. It is not enough. It will never be enough because we absolutely require that Jesus' righteousness provide what we never could. Religion, that's not Christianity. See, religion is our attempt, man's attempt, to reach God with our own efforts. But the gospel says that we'll never be good enough and God has pursued us with his good news. He is own son has now lived a sinless life and provides us with salvation through his effectual, relentless, all-pursuing love and kindness of his death and resurrection. No matter how much money you might have, no matter how much affluence or influence you might have in your life right now, no, many, no, 
it doesn't matter how many awards or honors or accolades or titles or degrees you have in your life, how much education you have, all of those things mean absolutely nothing to God. He only knows you through His Son. He only knows you and can only know you through what His Son Jesus has done. So, if you're here this morning and you're seeking to truly understand, not misunderstand His death and resurrection, but truly understand if what I've said has maybe made you think just for a moment that God has placed in your thought, maybe I have misunderstood why Jesus died. Maybe I have misunderstood who he really was. And maybe I have not really trusted in the risen Christ with my heart, with my life. That I want to ask you this very morning, to act upon that understanding. To place your belief and your trust in the risen Christ. To give Him your life. To give Him your very soul. To trust Him and Him alone for what He has done for you as your substitute that you could not do yourself. And give your heart to Him. Give your very commitment to Him in your heart. If you're here this morning, I want to encourage you to give your heart to the Lord. It's as simple as ABC. ABC, and if you remember this when you leave here and God brings it to mind, if you're just not sure, I pray you will not rest until you are. If you leave this place, I will pray, and so will many here, that you will not rest easy in your spirit until you settle this issue. It's as simple as ABC. First, you admit. What do you admit? You admit that you are in need of God's forgiveness and His grace. You admit that you are sinful. You admit that you are incapable of having a relationship with God on your own moral value. You admit that. You willingly confess that. That's called repentance. And then after you admit that and you repent of that, you then believe. It's called faith. It's a gift that God gives you and you take that gift and you place it in, in trusting in Him and what He's done for you. You believe and you trust and have faith in what Christ has done in His death and resurrection. You believe and trust that for all eternity. And then lastly, you commit. You commit your heart. You commit by faith to giving your very self and depending upon Him. For the rest of your life, you know that there's no other answer. You know there's no other place to turn. You know that this is the answer that you must decide and come to a clear conclusion on. And you commit your heart to Him. When you do this, the simple ABCs of giving your heart to Christ, He's there. He will be there. He'll continue to be there. And I encourage you, if you live here, to come and Return next Sunday and join us and continue to find out more of what it means to follow Christ daily with your life. If you don't live here and you're visiting, I encourage you to find a place of fellowship wherever you go. Find a church that preaches this good news, that teaches this same truth from the Scriptures, and allow your life to be involved with that church, to 
be taught properly to understand more than just your own salvation and continue to grow in Him. But if you're here today and you are already a believer, let me ask you, do you relate to Jesus as a risen Lord or are you still standing at His grave misunderstanding His offer to be the substitute for your sin? You can believe He was a substitute, but you know, we get so easily sidetracked as Christians, as believers. We can be so taken off of the path that He has called us to and we can misunderstand what's happening in our life right now. We can misunderstand what he's calling us to follow him in a specific thing or specific opportunity. We need to follow and not misunderstand. Admit that we, knew, that we need Jesus. Renew our trust in him. Renew your trust as a follower of him again this morning. Renew your faith in him as your risen savior. Renew your dependence on him. It's not about performance. It's about dependence. Depending on him, all that he has done through his death and his resurrection.